and welcome back to a new episode of the StatCast podcast with your hosts, Harrison Friedman and Sam Greenman. Today, we have something very special for you. Uh, we are interviewing the ma- uh, managing editor of the Red Reporter, which is the SB Nation website for the Cincinnati Reds. We know that Sam is a big fan of the Bright Future Reds. I think they're a pretty interesting team. But So we're going to run this right after our intro. And I think it's a really good interview. We had a great time. His name is Wick Terrell. He's been at the Red Reporter for the past 10 years, so he really knows his Reds. Um, but first, Milo Hamilton. Swinging. So, I know Sam especially has been, like, on the Bright Future Reds bandwagon for I don't even know how long. It's been 2018 when Scooter Jeanette actually did some good things and when Suarez was starting to become very good that I noticed that... So, back-to-back number two overall draft picks and the rebuild looked like it was starting to go somewhere. Yeah, that that was... uh, I feel like that's like one roughly one baseball generation behind how I got kind of sucked back in. I so I grew up uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, just like an hour south of Cincinnati, which is why I've been a Reds fan for my entire life. But um, I kind of did all of that when it was 2008, when it was Homer Bailey and Johnny Cueto and Jay Bruce and Joey Votto all kind of coming up, and that was when I was right out of school, and um, that that's when I got hooked back into to following the Reds and wanting to write about them as much. And um, those first couple of years were fantastic, and I thought we were there and it was going to happen. And then it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and so now we're sli- cycling back into the next uh, iteration of hopefully what the Reds will be uh, uh, good at. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I empathize with that. And I'm, I'm hoping this is kind of the, the start of the next uh, next wave of being a, a relevant baseball team. Yeah. Um, I just wish Joey Votto's career didn't get as wasted as it did. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. I've thought about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love Votto. Uh, but what are these? Like, so here's a question for you. So at the beginning of the season, it seemed like he was really trying as hard as he could to hit 400 because the opportunity was there. I mean, you get enough hits in that uh, that many games and you kind of luck into that. But what do you think of what was going on at the beginning of the season? It's been really weird watching him the last couple of years, obviously, as as his power is kind of um, I, I don't want to say disappeared, but it's. it's I don't know if it's his power disappearing as much as it is the the change in the game, the change in launch angle and ball flight and uh, propensity of home runs and all that other stuff as he's kind of aging, if it's kind of gotten him to be a mental thing because he's still hitting the ball extremely hard when he does make contact, but the contact's not been there. He's been uh, pitched differently, much more up in the zone than he ever was before. Um, even last year, well, last year, I guess it's not technically 2020. So even in 2019, um, he had a midseason swing change that was just a drastic, drastic swing change. And for a guy who has always been so cerebral and kind of ahead of the game on how he approaches things at the plate, to see him kind of make such a drastic mid-year switch um, – was really, really odd. So coming into this year, we weren't sure exactly what we were going to see out of Otto. Was he going to be the more standing upright guy who was, you know, kind of a little bit more what he was when he was 23, 24 first coming up? Was he going back to the squat and the choke up and to fight every pitch off and try not to strike out as much as anybody else in baseball? Um, 
we got kind of a weird mix of that to start. And, um, you know, the Reds had a one-year hitting coach last year in Alan Zinter and fired him after last season, or Turner Ward, sorry, and brought in Alan Zinter this year. And so we were kind of interested to see if there was a kind of a, a team-wide philosophy change or not. Um, but watching Votto continue to try to evolve has been one of the things that I've really enjoyed most about his entire career because it kind of seems like whenever he picks one thing that he wants to try to fix – he fixes it sometimes at the expense of other things in his game. Um, but he's always found a way to kind of fix the one thing that was really bugging him. Um, and so to see him struggle as much as he did to start and then kind of flip the switch again this year um, was really, really interesting. And hopefully it's something that we can kind of anticipate going forward too, because um, he's not going to get any younger. You know, he, he's 37 years old this year. So, um, but he did rediscover his power a little bit through the middle of the season at the expense of striking out again Um yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in anyone to see whether or not he can kind of maintain that new Votto approach uh, heading into next year. Yeah, it was really, really nice to see, um, you know, his stance change. I think, you know, you touched on that. That was the big thing that he changed. And you could tell, like, it was it turned from very hitterish to very almost squared to the pitcher with his hands like halfway up the bat and like holding the bat like right at his kneecaps. Like almost like he's a pitcher about ready to square around for a bun. Yeah, you know, he he was a big, big fan of getting deep into counts because he felt like the more he saw one pitcher throw to him while he was in the batter's box, the better chance he had of getting a better result, even if that many was down 0-2. Um, and for a while he was doing that, he was choking up. And I, I don't have the stats right in front of me, but I know for a while through the first couple of weeks of the season, he had hit basically no extra base hits, but had walked something like 16 times to striking out only three or four times in the season, which, you know, that's, that's impressive for anyone in any era of baseball, much less in the era of high strikeouts right now. Um, but it came at the, the expense of any power whatsoever. Like he just wasn't swinging hard at anything and, and he was just kind of filing off and trying to do his best just to not get struck out. Uh, that changed, that completely changed. And, you know, his end of the season stats kind of reflected that, that he, stop selling out for not striking out and going back to just actually swinging hard. Um, and that kind of slugging percentage back up and he finally started hitting some home runs as well. And yeah, I hope that bodes well for, for, uh, for 2021 because I'm not super optimistic about the last couple of years of his contract, but I do think he's got enough left in the tank to still provide uh, another year or two of uh, above average, above average production. Sorry. So like in, as talking about the future of the Reds. I don't know. They're a team, which, You've got like a decent amount of old guys who I feel like you you could think differently, but I feel like they're sort of trying to contend now, even if I know a lot of teams like uh, are either in the rebuild or contend right now, but the Reds have sort of like aimed for in a normal season, I guess, like the 80 to 89 win range. With like this kind of group? Yeah, no, the Reds uh the Reds decided to throw a lot of money at 30 and over guys who only play corner outfield and corner infield, which is a really interesting strategy, especially in a league that doesn't have the DH. Unless I don't I don't think they have the DH. Uh yeah. Um yeah, bringing in Castellanos and Mustakas to play Moose at second base is um, you know, in theory, adding two very potent bats in a ballpark that should provide a lot of home run potential for the both of them. Um, but it's also sacrificing a lot on defense. And when you look at, you know, Votto slipping a little bit at first base and Suarez not being quite the elite defender at third base that he used to be, um, you know, Shogo fortunately turned out to be an extremely good uh, outfielder. I think you could play him in center field and he'd still be above average also. But also, guys, 33 years old at this point, um, you, you know, you factor all that in and it's uh, it's a very interesting strategy and it's one the Reds obviously try to do to to get the offensive portion of it to kind of lead the um, uh, the way at the expense of a little bit of defense. I think in large part because they knew they had such a good pitching staff that they didn't necessarily need 
a whole lot of defense and any ball that's hit in the air in Great American Ballparks, a home run anyway. So you're not tracking down balls in the outfield. Um, it didn't really work this year. And, you know, for a, a litany of reasons, uh, you know, uh, streakiness, uh, coronavirus scares, um, injuries, whatever, it just didn't quite pan out. And none of the guys really were hitting uh, their strides at the same time. It kind of seemed like every single day, the Reds had a, what looked on paper to be a pretty potent one through nine lineup and only two guys were hitting at a time. Um, I, I think they're hopeful that over 162 game season, that'll normalize a little bit. Um, but it's something we've noticed as well, too, that this is a club that's built to win now and is not getting any younger. Um, you don't have that kind of money tied up in that many guys who are 30 to 35 years old uh, and and only expect to break 500. And I think the Reds know that. Uh, I think they're also you know, for better or for worse, hoping for a little bit better production from some of the younger players. And they didn't get that this year either. Um, you know, Jesse Winker obviously had a great season benefiting from the fact that he finally got a chance to be a DH cause he's a God awful defender in the outfield. Um, but they didn't get much from Nick Senzel either, uh, both from you know lack of production and just from not being able to stay on the field. Um, and obviously at shortstop, you know, they, they kind of turned the page from Freddie Galvez to Jose Garcia and that just didn't quite take off this year. So um, I think they've got a pretty good, floor of established older players around them but if this Reds teams were going to really take off offensively they need those younger guys to kind of step up and be those four win five win guys what do you think like specifically of Garcia and Senza like as far as the future of the Reds do you think like yeah, this year I was gonna we I was gonna ask like when do you think Senzel is gonna make the jump because I feel like we he came up like he had that series against the Giants where he hit the triple, then he got robbed of the homer, and he was, you know, he was hitting the ball really well, and he hasn't really kept it going at all. He's had just an awful time staying on the field. Um, you know, he had vertigo last year. He slammed into the wall in the outfield and separated his shoulder. Um, you know, he woke up, and obviously it's everything in 2020 was extremely small sample size, but uh, the morning he, or the day he tested positive for coronavirus, which we're assuming he did and never got actually revealed. Um, but when he was mysteriously taken off the field at the end of the game, he woke up that morning with an 857 OPS playing plus center field defense. And this is a guy who came up as a second baseman, third baseman is still just 25 years old and didn't make the switch until center field until prior to the 2019 season. So for me, I look up at that and I'm say, Hey, you're getting an 57 OPS from a guy who is your best athlete um, over a 162 game pace. He was on pace for a 2020 season and you're playing plus defense in center field. Like that's, that's the kind of player you build a team around. That's a, that's a four or five win player. If everything breaks white for, you know, 600 plate appearances. Uh, and then he tested positive, missed a month and went two for 28 to finish the season. And his stats at the end of the year just look awful. So, um, you know, he's still just 25 years old. I'm still incredibly uh, impressed with his potential. Um, I think he's the best athlete on a team that, as we just talked about, is getting old, is getting slower and isn't a very good defensive team. Um, Sinzel specifically, I'm, I'm still extremely high on. And I hope, you know, the the way the Reds outfield shakes out right now with uh, Castellanos and Winker and Aquino uh, and Shogo and Sinzel as well. Um, if there's not a DH, I, I really hope that Sinzel is not the guy that gets squeezed for that because, uh, I still think he's got the highest upside of any of those guys uh, because he can play defense and he can run the bases, um, but he's got to stay healthy to do it. And that's the big, the big question with, uh, with Garcia. I, I think he's going to, I think he's already good enough to be a legitimate defensive big league shortstop every single day. Uh, some of the stuff he was doing in spring training this year, you can see why they shelled out. Um, I'm trying to think. They'd already signed Alfredo Rodriguez for $5 million in that international window. They signed Garcia for another five, which with the tax turned it into roughly a $10 million deal, which is a lot of money to shell out for a guy in, uh, from an organization that hasn't spent a whole lot internationally. 
Uh, that was at age 17, and he's just now 22, 23. Uh, this is a guy they've been very high on for a long time. Um, some of the stuff you've seen with his bat has been extremely impressive. And you look at his minor league stats, uh, had never played above advanced A-ball coming into this season um, and was doing it mostly in the Florida state league, which is just an extreme pitchers league. Uh, I think he led the league in doubles and in extra base hits in his one full season in uh, the Florida state league. So he's got that offensive potential, but he just was not at all ready this year. Um, I, I think he's got a legit chance to be um, uh, a good big league player, whether or not he's going to be, you know, that, you know, start him 162 games at shortstop and bat him second guy that uh, so many shortstops are across baseball these days. I, I don't know if he's got that in him, um, but I think he does have the chance to be a, a, an everyday regular for the Reds. The question is, uh, did they turn that over to him in 2021 or do they kind of kick the ball down the road another year or two and hope that they can get some better production there? Yeah. I was going to ask, what do you think the Reds infield, like, let's say we've got a DH, which I mean, was a good, great for the Reds because you've got a lot of guys who can hit but not field as well what do you think the infield and the outfield too looks like if you had to make a projection at this point without free agent signings yeah you know without free agent signings i think it's garcia i don't think there's another guy there that really profiles as that guy they've got guys like uh like kyle farmer who's proven to be just a a swiss army knife utility guy which it's you know jokingly now that massive reds dodgers trade from a couple years ago with puig and alex wood and everything else it's the kyle farmer trade now um he showed he can play shortstop this year. It's something he did a lot at University of Georgia and just never really got the chance to in the big leagues. Um, I think he's a your classic backup guy who's got a little pop in his bat from the right side, but you know, not not the guy you want to roll out there every day. Uh, Alex Blandino, another former first round pick, is kind of in that same mold as well, where he's more of a a utility guy who can play short in a pinch if you're doing a lot of shifting and everything else. But um, right now, Garcia is the best option they've got in house. Um, you know, obviously losing Galvis to free agency. Uh, there are a lot of shortstop options out there this winter. Uh, the question is, do the Reds have any money? Um, we don't know that. They spent uh, what could be $164 million in free agency last winter, uh, depending on opt-outs and who sticks around and everything else. Um the first time they've ever really done that. I, I don't know if that kind of money is around this winter. Uh, and if it is, I don't know if they send it Trevor Bauer's way or if they choose to kind of address shortstop, whether it's in free agency with a guy like Marcus Simeon or former Red Didi Gregorius would be nice to have back. Um, but I don't think they got the money to do both. And so it's going to be very interesting to see what they kind of turn to at that uh, at that point, because, um, as I said, Garcia is a guy who I think is glove ready, um, but they would love to see him have a little bit more seasoning than having to turn him over, turn over a shortstop to him full time in 20. Yeah. So do you think. If you are the Reds GM right now, do you and you see these Semyons getting a deal? I don't know, like three years, fifty million dollars. Is that the kind of thing you go for, or do you not? Because you think Garcia, at the very least, is going to be the guy in twenty two, if not twenty one. That's that's the big question. Um, you know, I would love to see what. Well, first first off, it's just Nick Crawl making the decisions this time around. You know, Dick Williams stepped down uh, uh, after the end of the season, and that had kind of been a two headed monster for the longest time. And the fact that they, you know, when retired as. Uh, baseball operations head and Nick crawl was already GM and they didn't replace Williams. They just kind of gave crawl both jobs. Uh, it makes you wonder how aggressive they're really going to be uh, this particular winner. Um, you know, ideally I, I think you block Jose Garcia, if you get the best player out there and you sort it out later, um, you know, there's a chance uh, Castellanos can can opt out after the 2021 season. And then maybe Mike Moustakas can be more of a DH and you can move Garcia over to second base after this season. Um, I, I think, if you're really committed to winning now, uh, I think you've got to go out and get an everyday shortstop, whether it's Simeon, whether it's Gregorius, whether you you dip your your toes into the Francisco Lindor trade waters. Um, 
all of those guys are guys that are going to make 15 to 20 million dollars a year. That's just that's where it is. And there's not really a you know, you're not bringing Freddie Galvis back again uh, and letting Trevor Bauer walk and calling that your offseason. You've got to either bring a frontline starting pitcher in to replace the Cy Young award winner you're letting walk, or you got to get a shortstop and all the good shortstops out there are going to cost a lot of money. So uh, there's no really way, real way to kind of uh, uh, to shortcut this and, and sell it to fans that uh, you're buying somebody who's got the chance to rebound into this big name player. You're going to have to pay him to do that up front. And so I'm, I'm as interested as anyone to see how they, uh, how they respond to that. Cause uh, it's a pretty glaring hole right now. No doubt about it. I think um, one thing that, the Reds should definitely take into consideration is that they were the team that had the highest percentage of their runs come via the home run. They, a lot of the times had traffic on the base paths, but never really when we saw it in the wild card 13 inning game, um, they had so many chances and couldn't string together more than one or two hits. And so I think getting somebody, I honestly think Semyon is a guy who's, not even semi. I would honestly take a long look at DJ LeMahieu and see if you can put somebody else at shortstop. You know that that's, LeMahieu's bat. I would just adore having. So I I I live in Denver now. I actually, my wife and I moved out here. Uh, God, it's been almost eight years now. Um, so I had a chance to watch him when he was playing for the Rockies out here as well. And the guy is just a he's the classic high contact bat, which the Reds don't really have in their lineup right now. They've got a lot of swing and miss, a lot of home run potential, but a whole lot of swing and miss. And that I think in large part was why they struggled to really string things together. Um, the one question I have with shortstop, and you know, obviously you look up with what the Reds did and what every team out there is doing now, and they're doing so much shifting. You can play a lot of players out of place defensively. Yeah, because I think that's the reason that Mustak has placed second base a lot is because he's always in, in there because of the shift. Yeah, he's a, he's a guy who at third base has great instincts for balls that are hit pretty close to him and doesn't have a ton of range. But uh, they've done their best to try to put him where they think here's going to hit the ball really hard at him. Uh, and for the most part, he was pretty good at that. But, you know, the question is, how many guys can you play out of position uh, and still make that work, especially when you've got outfielders like Winker and Castellanos, if you don't have a DH, neither of whom are plus defenders either. So, um, yeah, with shortstop, I would love to get offense and get guaranteed offense there. Uh, but there's a part of me that says you've got to have good defense there also because, um, you know, between that and Nick Senzel struggling to stay in the lineup, uh, those are really your only two plus defenders on this on this team right now. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would love to have LeMahieu's bat somewhere in there, but I almost am kind of resigned to the fact that you've got to have a pretty good glove guy there also because uh, that's the one thing that's going to make everybody else who's already kind of playing out of position really work. Do you think that because the Reds, like, play in Great American Ballpark that – that almost makes it a bigger need for really good infield defense, since if you can limit like those on shifts, then home runs are likely to, less likely to be really costly with like one or two or three men on the bases. Yeah, it's been the, the the great experiment we've kind of tried to follow for the longest time. You know, for for a, a good period of time, um, you know, finding guys who were ground ball heavy pitchers was just absolutely what you had to do. And then they found great uh, success in Jared Hughes from the bullpen for a couple of years specifically, because he just threw a sinker and that was, you know, line him up, shut him down, get the double play and go out. And, you know, if you hang one over the plate, it's a home run anyway. Um, 
that kind of changed a little bit. And obviously it's, it's, it's a little bit of chicken and the egg because the Reds never really heavily invested in having good starting pitchers for the first uh, kind of iteration of that. When they were looking for ground ball guys, uh, they finally spent some money on the, on the pitching, both with Trevor Bauer and Sonny Gray. Um, but they also have kind of changed the way they pitch too. And they pitch a little bit more up in the zone, more four seamers and emphasizing spin rate, uh, which has a lot to do with the you know hiring of Kyle Bodie and driveline to kind of come in and help. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about that. Inter- yeah. Yes. It's, I, I'm as interested as anyone to see like beyond year one of this because um, you know while he's obviously impacting the big league guys, he was brought in to take over the entire pitching coordination for the entire minor league system, and obviously we saw no minor league play this year, so there's no way to know exactly what he's been up to with those guys either. But uh, um, they certainly changed the way they pitched this year. They pitched a lot more up in the zone. Uh, it resulted in great strikeout rates, and their home run fly ball rates didn't really change much at all. And so you almost wonder if. Uh, it, it's less about pitching to the park and more about just paying for good pitching. <laughs> there might be the better strategy in this. And, um, you know, it helps that you've got a guy like Luis Castillo who, uh, has yet to get expensive also, who you kind of unearthed in a, a pretty savvy trade a couple of years back. But, um, it also certainly helps to have guys like Bauer and Sonny Gray on the mound too, that, uh, uh, don't necessarily have to just hope they get a ground ball hit to a good defense. Um, but on the, the theory of that, I will say, I, I do think that is a, uh, a pretty solid strategy of investing your infield defense kind of put on outfield, at least in home games, because, um, well, not even just in home games. You look at the NL Central when you're playing in Milwaukee and sometimes when you're playing in Chicago when the wind's blowing out. Uh, it doesn't matter how good your outfield defense is. They're not going to have a whole lot to do uh, behind them uh, on a day-to-day basis. Especially in St. Louis when it gets hot, too. Oh, yeah. Steamy St. Louis. Yeah. It's a great ballpark. I've actually not been to the new Bush Stadium. I went to Bush, too, but I've not been back to St. Louis to catch a game in the newest Bush Stadium. But uh, always a fun – I mean – for as much as we love to rip Cardinals fans for being the best fans in baseball, um, they do make for a pretty damn fun environment when you get a chance to watch a game there. Yeah, I live in St. Louis right now, so I nice. Yeah, so I've been to Bush a bunch of times, and even if they're not the best fans in baseball, they're very good fans. Yeah, they're there. I mean, yeah. you got you got a great American ballpark in the last ten years, and there's nobody there except Cardinals fans. So yeah, this, um, you can see the sun deck and the moon deck all like <laughs> always half full, and it's you know, and it's nice because it blends in. It's Cardinals fans. It's red. It's like yeah, the Reds fans, but you zoom in and they've got uh, a bird on their chest. That's the one thing I'll, I'll give Rockies fans a lot of credit for is that even when the Rockies aren't good, which is pretty much every year, uh, Coors Stadium or Coors Field is still a fun, fun ballpark to go to. It is always packed. It's a, it's a great spot to see a game. And um, it's amazing how much of an environment that adds to um, um, the play of baseball, because when you're out there in just a, a cavernous, empty ballpark that's quiet, it's like it, I can't imagine what it is, uh, what's going through the, 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 the minds of the players in the field. Yeah. Just a lot of players <laughs> that I've like seen reactions about. It's like it's so weird being in such like it's almost like deafening silence in Miami. It's like they don't like playing there just because like they feel like they're in like a scrimmage. <laughs> yeah, which is I mean, that's that's the other aspect about this 2020 season that I, um, you know, we're going to see it play out for the Reds specifically in their bottom line this this winter. Um, but this was a team that was put together to bring fans back to the ballpark in Cincinnati. They spent a lot of money. They traded for Trevor Bauer. They did all these things that were supposed to say, hey, we're investing in this team. We're going to be good again. Uh, Finally, show up and come watch it. And obviously, because of the pandemic, that never had a chance to really materialize. So there's a part of me that feels bad for these these players that weren't part of the Cincinnati system 
committed to come back and play for a team that's got a pretty storied history over the course of their their franchise history, uh, but not recently. And I think, you know, just talking to a lot of my friends in the area who were really excited about getting a chance to go watch good baseball again, it's kind of a two-way street. You know, I feel like the the players that were brought in never really had a chance to get energized by a fan base that's kind of been sleeping for a long time. Um, and I do wonder how much the, of an impact just playing in empty stadiums over and over again with players you've never played with before uh, kind of wore on them over the course of the season. But uh, hopefully, knock on everything, that's something we won't have to worry about again next year. Uh, although I'm increasingly less optimistic about that by the day. Oh. Yeah, let's hope we have baseball in 2021. Uh, that's so I don't know. Forget fans in the first place, but yeah, so we can play games. Let's let's open off a strike. We got the collective bargaining agreement oh, yeah. expiration as well, which uh, that's going to be a, a disaster trying to sort through. They, also, haven't they, haven't they pushed it back like two or three times already? They've pushed it back several times. They've tried to well, they've they've cut it to both. They've tried to push some of it back. They also tried to roll some of it into the negotiations to get the twenty twenty season back in play, because um, they were trying to figure out uh, you know the, the expanded playoffs and the DH and all that other stuff. Also, it's uh, you know when we look up and see a lot of these front office, you know, you know Theo Epstein obviously stepping down today. Dick Williams stepped down earlier this month. Um, Dave Dombrowski said, "No, I, I'm not ready to get back into baseball. I'm going to stick to this Nashville expansion thing for a while." It's interesting to see a lot of the power players in the game not exactly excited about making a lot of moves right now, and almost kind of wanted to distance themselves for a little bit and see how things shake out. Uh, I'm hopeful. It doesn't get uglier than it did this past summer when uh, the Players Association and, and the commissioner's office struggled to get baseball back on the field. But uh, having watched that, I'm also pretty pessimistic that it's just going to be seamless uh, to get a new CBA signed and roll right into a 2022 season after all this. It's very weird to see Theo Epstein de- declined $10 million. <laughs> yeah. You know, he that doesn't bode well for a vote of confidence in how much, you know, how profitable it's going to be next season. Yeah, I I looked at that and said, okay, John Lester's contract expired, and then what? Bryant, Rizzo, Baez, and yeah, Schwarber. He, he does not want that mess. He did, he, I, he probably went to the front office and went to the ownership and said, "Can I sign any of these guys?" And they said no. And he said, "Well, I'm not going to be the one that has to trade all of them. I'm not going to do that." And that was that because it just it doesn't it doesn't scream that there's going to be a lot of continuity with the Chicago Cubs beyond this year uh, is the best way I can describe it. I feel, I feel bad for Jed Hoyer. I'm glad he gets a chance to kind of be in his own realm there without the shadow or being in the shadow of Theo Epstein. But uh, at the same time, it's like, wow, um, if Theo's walking away from a club that should be that good without much spending potential and they're not doing it. Uh, well, from a Reds perspective, I'm excited about it because in theory, that means the Cubs shouldn't be as good going forward. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Cubs probably after 21, they're in the basement. The Pirates, even if they get Kumar Rocker in the draft this year, it seems like they're not going to get out of it anytime soon. So it's Cardinals and Brewers and Reds fighting for something. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a Vanderbilt graduate, and so I've always I've been very excited with uh, the Vandy connection the Reds have put together with Sonny Gray, Sonny and Gray, yeah, Kirk Casale and uh, Caleb Cottom if they can hold on to him if he didn't get signed by the Phillies to go be their pitching coach. But uh, watching Rocker pitch the way he has and thinking, oh God, he's going to go to the Pirates, it's just it's uh it's a little bit a little bit frustrating to see that. But um, yeah, no, it's it's going to be interesting in the Central for sure. Um, you know, I, I certainly think there's a window of opportunity there. Um, a lot of things have to fall in the right you know, place for that to happen. Uh, the Reds ownership has to continue to commit to spending. They got to find a shortstop. They got to hope that there is a DH for this year, because if there's not, this becomes a very disjointed roster. Um, Cause Winker. But, needs a spot. Yeah. 
because Winker's the guy who actually hit this year, you know, for a, uh, a team that hit 212 as a team, which is just amazing to say that. Um, you know, he was the one guy that consistently was an offensive threat. And he's the kind of guy who, you know, I don't think this was a fluke for him this year. He's the kind of guy who has consistently shown he could be a legit 130, 140 OPS plus kind of guy. Um, you don't have a place to put him in the lineup if there's not a DH. And if you do, you're benching somebody else who should be in there too. Um, this, this, I'm not sure any National League team out there right now needs a DH more than the Reds do. Um, and if they find out there's not one for this year, uh, they're going to have to make some serious moves because it's just it's not a roster that's designed to play classic National League baseball right now. Yeah, they made that transition from the best, the worst pitching team in baseball to the best pitching team in baseball, but then became the worst hitting team in baseball. Yeah, um, you know the the history of Reds pitching has been. Um, well, they've had some good bullpens. They've actually had some very, very good bullpens at times, but starting pitching has just been a wasteland for my entire life. Um, I miss the Arroyo you know, days. Yeah, God, yeah, throwing Frisbees up there. Watching oh, Bronson. I love that. Just why, throwing why? it at 73 miles an hour every time. <laughs> I'm going to throw, throw the best curveball of the game from seven different arm angles over the course of one inning. It was um, it was brilliant to watch that guy pitch and a real a real throwback for sure. But um, yeah, you know, that, that was – he – he embodies the history of Reds pitching up until the last two years so well because um, he got good results, but did it in a completely different way than every other good pitcher in baseball did. And it's like almost if it's, it's poetic that the Reds had to stumble into somebody doing it their own way, as opposed to actually getting a good pitcher who threw 98 and struck a lot of guys out. I mean, they had Chapman, but starter experiment failed yeah i was man he goes nobody to ever talks about the fact that he was uh, tried to be a starter for so um true story uh spring training 2012 um i was actually in goodyear arizona with uh, three other guys two of them still right for red reporter uh we went down there for a long weekend to go catch some games um we were entering john interviewing john fay of the inquirer the beat writer for the inquirer um about chapman on the last day he was supposed to start in spring training, he actually threw five innings, I think, against the San Diego Padres, uh, allowed one hit in that time. While we were interviewing John Fay, we found out that Ryan Madsen had torn his UCL and oh, was going to have Tommy John right. surgery. And he had to cut our interview short to go like actually interview the front office at that point. And it was after that that Dusty said, hey, we're built to win right now in 2012. We need to roll this in our roster. Put him at closer and boom, that was it. And, the, you know, the top pitching prospect in all baseball at that time never started a game for the Reds. <laughs> Are we seeing? Are we going to see the same thing with Hunter Green? Oh God, that's <laughs> see, that that that's the the whole Calabodian driveline thing that I, I wish I had more information on because he's had the chance to work with him for most of this year. Um, you know, obviously the injuries in Tommy John and whatnot, he set out all of uh, all of the 2019 season and a lot of 2020, but got you know several months on the mound um, at the Mason practice facility outside Cincinnati this year. Got to work with the driveline guys a lot. Uh, Nick Lodolo as well, their first round pick from last year. Um, two just extremely talented arms. Um, all signs, everything, knock on everything I can possibly reach right now, uh, said that he looked just as good as he did beforehand. He was sitting easy at 99 to 101, um, working on a secondary pitch, but he's got such a smooth delivery that, God, I hope he ends up in, on the rota- in the rotation because I think he's the most talented arm the Reds have had, aside from Rolls Chapman in the last 15, 20 years at least. I think he's mostly starting to you know stray away from his two-way dream. I th- I, th- I heard that he's kind of more focused on pitching now than than hitting 
you know, if uh, uh, if there is a DH in the National League and that does somehow manage to stick around through this CBA, um, I think he'd be very good at getting a couple of bats a game. Um, but at the same point in time, you know, if he never actually tries that anymore going forward, I'd be fine with that as well because his arm talent from what I've seen is um, it's just off the charts. And for as good an athlete and shortstop as I think he was, um, I, I think it's, he probably realizes his, uh, his moneymaker is that right arm and hopefully he just sticks to that at this point. Yeah, you got some short soaps who I'm sure would probably be really great pitchers if that's what they were trying to do their whole life. But yeah, Green, I think, should absolutely stay on the mound of you throwing 101. Yeah, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you because, um, you know, there are so many players out there and pitchers out there right now that try to run it up to 101. Um, he just seems like he's flicking his wrist when he throws it and it's just lighting up the the radar. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited for him for sure. There's a reason why he got the highest draft bonus of all time when he signed uh, as the number two pick. Uh, I think the Reds are heavily invested in him and are going to do everything they can. And, I mean, he's still what, just 20 years old? I mean, 21, I think, at some point later this year. Um, he's a guy that still has an immense future future and um yeah I, i'm excited to see him get a chance to get back on a mound and get some real competition in it because uh, uh i think the ceiling is as high for him as there is for any any pitching prospect and for any franchise in baseball right now to be honest so about guys who can throw or can throw at least a uh, hundred what do you think of michael lorenzen yeah michael lorenzen a guy well <laughs> i think he could throw a baseball through a wall if he wanted to and if he didn't he'd punch his way through the wall um you know you look at the, his season the way he got started uh, his first four or five appearances literally almost cost the Reds a postseason appearance um, because he just got absolutely rocked. And he was talking most of the offseason about, well, I say offseason, he was talking a lot last in th- April, oh, okay, April, May, and offseason. June. Yeah, yeah. The, heading into what, what should have been the season. Um, but he talked so much about how he was working on increasing velocity. And a lot of that was working with the driveline team who, you know, they specialize in doing that. Uh, he was throwing 100 and 101 miles an hour to start the season and couldn't locate at all. And that's when he was getting hit his hardest. Um, he settled down. The last half of his season was incredibly good. He's actually going into 2021 prepping to be a starter uh, at this point, which is interesting on a on a completely different level. But when he settled back down and started throwing 94 to 97 like he did the last couple seasons, that's when he was good again. Um, I think he has every bit the arm talent to throw that much harder, uh, but he just seems to do better when he's not overthrowing. Uh, I think he locates better. I think he finds the zone better. Uh, and I think his stuff is still plenty good enough sitting 95, 96 to get batters out. Um, the question is, you know, if you're a reliever and you've got the body type and the strength that he does to be able to throw 101, 102 as a reliever, you pitch better at 95, 96 and you know it. Can you pitch 95, 96 for four or five innings? And if you can, can you be that guy who can step into the rotation and help fill the void left by a Trevor Bauer, left by an Anthony DiScofani and kind of the back end of the rotation um, and be a more valuable part of that team than just a guy who can throw harder than anybody else in the, in the bullpen. And, um, you know, something I'm extremely interested to watch. There's so many things I'm interested to watch, seeing how we transition from a 60-game shortened season back into a full year. Uh, no pitcher in baseball threw more than, what, 79, 80 innings this year? And all those guys are going to be asked to throw 200 or 180 or whatever next year. The more guys you have prepped to potentially be able to throw 100, 110 if need be, the better off you might be. And so while Lorenzen's prepping as a starter, um, maybe he just ends up throwing 90 innings from the bullpen and getting spot starts here and there. Uh, Cause I'm not sure a lot of guys are going to be able to go past 150, 160 going into next season. Um, and I think he's a guy who kind of fits that perfect swingman mo- uh, role uh, about as well any, as any in, in, in baseball right now. You talked about Di Sclafani and um, 
I I think it's worth noting that he and uh, Tyler Malley get overlooked a lot in that rotation. Love Malley. Yeah, and um, I, I don't know. I feel like they are as almost as big of a piece as Bauer leaving. I, I guess Malley's not the free agent, but Dee Sclafani is. I, if you lose both Bauer and Dee Sclafani, I don't see how going for the offensive, um, going for the bat instead will work out. Yeah, somebody's going to have to fill those innings. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, Disco uh, struggled midway through this season. He and his wife actually had their first child midway through the year. He went on paternity leave, came back, and was positively awful after that. So there's a, there's a lot of us that say, okay, well, he was going through a lot of other stuff in his career um, other than being on the mound, and maybe that wasn't indicative of who he actually can be. Because in the past, he's been a really good pitcher at times. You know, he's been a three-and-a-half win pitcher twice in his career, uh, kind of alternating between good seasons and injury uh, related seasons. He was healthy by all accounts this year. Um, I wouldn't hate it if the Reds brought it back on a, you know, one, you know, uh, one year deal, maybe a uh, two year incentive related deal. Um, he's a guy who obviously has great relationships with a lot of the, uh, uh, the players on the team. Um, he and Tucker Barnhart are apparently really, really close as well. Um, you know, a guy who's not just somebody you can just replace from within, I don't think. Um, and uh, in theory, a guy who should come pretty cheap because he did have such bad numbers this year. Um, but also you look up and say, OK, well, when the Reds kind of overhauled the way they went about approaching their starting pitching, brought in Kyle Bodie, some guys took off like Tyler Malley specifically. Some guys didn't. And Anthony Scofani didn't under that kind of a change of philosophy. So you almost wonder if there's a little bit of a disconnect there um, with Tyler Malley. I've actually. I'm working on a piece that I haven't got a chance to finish and publish it yet, but he's a guy I'd love to see the Reds uh, agree to a contract extension with. He's first year arb eligible this year, probably going to make about two million bucks coming off a 130 ERA plus season. Um, but he was a seventh round draft pick, so he's not a guy like Hunter Green who got eight million dollars the moment he turned pro and can kind of wait out until he signs a big deal. I think his signing bonus was something like two hundred and ten thousand um, dollars. He's going to make good money this year for the first time. Uh, but it's also a guy I would love to see the Reds come to with a four or five year extension, buy out his Arb years, get a free agent year as well and kind of commit to um, because he's a guy who really took off under the way that the Reds kind of changed their pitching uh, philosophy this year. Um, obviously, a guy who's had great success in the minor leagues as well, despite the fact he wasn't a, a really good prospect uh, on ranking lists coming up. Um, but a guy who I think the Reds fully expect to step into one of those two roles uh, left in the rotation. Um, you know, I think he can quote unquote replace what you'd expect out of Di Scalfani over a full season. But again, that doesn't address losing Trevor Bauer. And so I do think the Reds have to make at least one significant addition to their rotation, whether it's promoting guys from within and kind of bumping your number two to number one and kind of moving up that way and filling in the back of the rotation or chasing Bauer. In which case, okay, great, but you're probably not going to be able to get your offensive upgrade there also. So on the subject of promoting guys from within, we saw like some teams. I mean, I saw this personally because I was an Astros fan since so many of our guys got injured that we had to bring a bunch of like guys from AAA, AA, single A even up to just like and threw, threw them all in the bullpen. The back of rotations uh, saw what happened. Do you think the Reds uh, pitching depth in the upper minors is enough that like Let's say the season is really tough to get through, like you were talking about. You need guys who can throw a bunch of innings. Is that the kind of thing you see the Reds being able to manage? That's that's the way that the Reds minor league system is set up right now. That's the question that has me so frustrated because there were so many guys that I was anticipating getting a chance to see kind of crack that double A and maybe fringe triple A season this year and know a lot more about them going into this year that we just didn't see. Uh, you know, Nick Lodolo, when they drafted him, was a guy that they thought was a polished college product who shouldn't three move quickly. Maybe a guy like Max Free with Atlanta who 
isn't going to get a whole lot better in the minors. He is what he is. Maybe you bring him up at 22, 23 and see what he's got in that, uh, that regard. I think ideally we would have seen that on display this year. We would have seen him in double a and seen how he competes against some of the better prospects in baseball. Um, I hope he's ready to contribute at some point mid year next year. Um, who knows about Hunter green as well, because he's a guy who in theory was supposed to be progressing to the point where he'd be on the cusp coming into 2021. Um, beyond that, You've got some really interesting names. You know, TJ Antone this year was a guy who came basically out of nowhere. Um, a guy who was never really on any top prospect list, was a little bit old for a rookie. Um, had Tommy John surgery two years ago, came back last year in AAA, flashed much better stuff, but his numbers weren't great. We weren't sure if that was just uh, AAA using the big league ball for the first time and everybody hitting 40 home runs or not. Uh, he stepped up this year and blew people away. I mean, just literally showed. Not only is he looks like he's a legit big league pitcher, he looks like a guy who could be a number two, number three starter going forward. Um, and it wasn't just the results showing that. He was hitting 97, 98 with his fastball. You look up on Baseball Savant, his spin rates are off the charts. Um, he's literally the kind of guy where you look up and, you know, not to get too off topic with this, but when when they traded for Trevor Bauer and brought in Calabody and Driveline, and obviously those two had such an extensive relationship, the initial assumption was, oh, Trevor Bauer is going to sign with the Reds and be a Red for the next 15 years or whatever. I don't know. I, increasingly, it looks like maybe they brought in Kyle Woody and Driveline to find the next Trevor Bauer and not to keep Trevor Bauer around. And when you see guys like Tyler Malley's taking his step forward, you see TJ Antone come out of nowhere and do what he did. You start to wonder, OK, um, maybe there is the ability to kind of reproduce some of these results without having to pay twenty five, thirty million dollars for the guy who's already done it before. Um, so I'm really interested to see how Antone takes that next step, because if he does, even if it's in the swingman role coming out of the bullpen and getting kind of spot starts here and there, that's hugely valuable. I mean, that, that basically fills out your number five starter role. Um Aside from that, Tony Santillan's the guy who really kind of stands out to me. He's former second round draft pick, had kind of a bad 2019 season once he reached double AA, A, triple A, had some shoulder soreness, but never had surgery. And so it's not something they consider structural. Um, but coming up as a second round pick, he's 6'5, 250, and can throw a ball through a wall. Um, I, I'm very interested to see what his development looks like. He was in the, um, uh, the auxiliary. Uh, whatever you camp you call it this year. Uh, so he was getting work against a lot of the kind of uh, fringe rotational big leaguers, uh, but never actually cracked the majors this year. He's the other arm I'm looking to, to kind of take that next step uh, because I think he's kind of the one who's most developed and ready for that role. Um, Beyond that, though, it's uh, it's a little bit of an abyss. There's not a whole lot more uh, ready-made talent there. There's some guys that are a little bit further away, uh, but it's kind of those four guys that I'm looking to, you know, if they can get one or two of them to kind of take that next step in the 2021 season, I think they'll be able to stomach not paying to keep a Trevor Bauer around. But still, uh, that's a lot to hope for without having a chance to really watch them in minor league action throughout the course of 2020. I think this Santion was very good, I think, 2018 in AA. But I think, if I remember correctly, like 2019 AA, he, he kind of took a step back. And, you know, he, there was no minor league season, so we didn't see him last year. Does that put any kind of fear into your mind that, you know, he, he kind of left off on a bad note? That's yeah, that's the worry. I mean, he got to double A, put up some poor numbers and double A Chattanooga has historically shown over the last couple of seasons. It's actually a pitcher's park. And so it's not like he was getting bit by, you know, uh, Pacific Coast League stats where you never really know how good they are because everything that gets touched is a home run. Um, that was concerning. You know, he lost his control a little bit. Uh, but again, he did apparently have some shoulder issue. And so uh, I know he didn't have surgery from it. And in theory, he's been able to get over that because it wasn't so bad that he had to have that surgery. That's the great unknown. That's 
that's that's where I wish I could have gone to uh, you know a game in Louisville or Indianapolis this past year and caught him against AAA talent because I don't know I didn't get a chance to see him but uh, I'm hoping and from what I've heard I don't have great sources but I've got a couple decent sources he is healthy again and uh, him working with the driveline guys that's the kind of match on paper that should produce some good results um, I just can't wait to see him that's all <laughs> and so the guy who's gonna catch him. Uh, I, is this, would you say he's the best prospect that the Reds have Tyler Stevenson? I think so. Um, you know, catchers, high school catchers in particular, just are such a crapshoot because you never, you always have high hopes for them, but there's so much that they're going to have to learn and go through that. You never know if their offense is lagging, if they're just spending all their time in practice, learning how to catch and call games. Um, you know, Tyler Stevenson is a physical specimen. He's six, four, two fifteen. can absolutely crush the ball when he makes contact. Um, had a really good eye at the plate, you know, pushing good on base percentages throughout the minors. Well, again, playing in Florida state league in Chattanooga that aren't necessarily offensively uh, positive environments. Um, he looked ready when he got up this year. It's an, obviously it's a terribly small sample size and he, he had, had a couple big bombs. home run. Yeah. yeah. He had one big home run in his opening, uh, uh, opening performance and then kind of, uh, you know, uh, jumped right into the limelight, but uh, he's a guy that the Reds have been very high on for a long time. First round draft pick. Um, I think that was the year that was what? That was 2015 when there was no real consensus number one overall pick. And he was kind of in the mix to potentially be the number one overall pick that year. Slipped to the Reds at like 11th or 12th. Um, but has always been a very highly regarded prospect. Uh, had some injury issues in the minors. Yeah, he broke his wrist one year and that kind of set him back. Um, but finally, once he got regular playing time made the typical progression you'd hope for. Um, I think the Reds are going to do everything they can to make sure he's got the ability to get a hundred starts next year. Um, I think they want him to do that as soon as 2021. What that means for Tucker Barnhart and Kirk Casale, I don't know, but I do know that Tucker's um, obviously a guy who's uh, got goal go caliber on defense uh, and a guy who works very well with the pitching staff. Uh, Casale is uh, Sonny Gray's personal catcher and I had a fantastic year offensively this year too. It's a good problem to have, um, but yeah, I think Tyler Stevenson's probably the, he's the best big league ready prospect the Reds have right now for sure. Uh, and a guy who I think is ready to go from opening day 2021. Yeah. I mean, uh, how old is Barnhart these, uh, right now? Like tw- 28, I think 29? he 29 might've just turned 30 or might, he might've, he might be in his year 30 season next year. Um, still, you know, obviously not over the hill by any means and on a very reasonable contract for a guy who's that good at what he does. Um, somebody who should in theory have some trade value if another team out there is, uh, interested in him. But, uh, yeah, sorting out, sorting out the catcher position is going to be interesting to see because the Reds could go a lot of different ways with it. I will say in each of the 2018 offseason and the 2019 offseason, they chased JT Real Muto heavily from the Phillies and didn't get him. Uh, and they also were heavily in trying to sign Yasmani Grandal last winter, didn't get him, and he signed with the, the White Sox. And so the Reds have obviously said, you know, not publicly, but they've shown their hand a little bit that catcher was a position they were willing to try to upgrade. The two best catchers in baseball they tried for and didn't land. Um, what does that mean for this offseason? I don't know, but it certainly tells me that they've kind of been looking for that upgrade in previous years. Maybe they think Tyler Stevenson's that guy and just turn it over to him. Yeah. I mean, I guess the team's got to hope that he's that guy because otherwise, what do you think? Like, I feel like this is unlikely, but would he be the kind of guy you trade if you're tar- trying to target a top tier starting pitcher? You know, you've got Barnhart under contract for, I think, three more seasons. Kirk Casale is only a second year arm eligible guy. So you've got the two of them for at least two more years, Tucker for three. 
if you got the right deal and somebody said, hey, we're going to give you Francisco Lindor and you can center around Tyler Stevenson. Yeah, you move Tyler Stevenson. Um, is, is Lindor the kind of guy that like you mentioned him a little earlier? Is he the kind of guy who thinking the Reds should target? Because I know he's just got one year left on his deal, but you could extend him like the Dodgers did with Mookie. I, I think Lindor's the kind of guy that you would trade for and extend. Um, you know, he's what? He's 25, 26 only right now. Uh, so while he's only got one year of team control left, if you're if you're giving up a lot to get a guy like that, I think you're doing so because you're saying, OK, we're just going to try to sign him. And we're going to try to keep him until he's 35 years old and you pay the price and, and, and go for it. That's what the Dodgers did with Mookie, as you mentioned. Um, you know, it's it, the question becomes, if you're going to spend $20 million on your 2021 roster, uh, are you going to do that plus the prospects it takes to get Lindor? Or are you just going to search in free agency and try to get close to that with a Simeon, with a DD, or with bringing Trevor Bauer back to be your ace again? I don't know. These are all fun questions to think about because it all means adding really good players to the Reds roster. Um, the question is, and that's the one that we don't know, is that how much are they willing to spend? Um, you know, they finally ramped up payroll to uh, what before it was prorated was projected to be about $145 million last year, which was clearly a record for the Reds. Barely got them to league average. I think they were roughly 15th or 16th overall, so still not big spenders, but big relative to where they had been. Um, the hope was that was going to be something they would sustain for several years going forward. Uh, but when, it, you know, a zero revenue year, uh, I, I don't know if that's something they're going to continue to do. And so, um, yeah, I don't think there's a better fit out there for what the Reds need than Francisco Lindor. It's just a really big cost to get them. And you're going to have to outbid other teams because everybody's going to want a Francisco Lindor. Heck, even the Dodgers are going to want a Francisco Lindor and they've got everything you already want already. Here's the thing, though. I don't know whether this is a petition for or against signing Lindor, but I don't know if it matters if you extend it because the 2021 class of shortstop free agents is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We talked about that two shows ago. Is I mean, it just it's Baez, Correa, Lindor, Seager. Seager, yeah. Story. Trevor Story. It might be the best of all of them. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to stomach giving up prospects for a guy this year. When you know that between now and this time next year, you're going to have the chance to sign any of those guys without giving up a prospect. Give which, up a draft pick, but yeah, not as bad. It, and it comes down to pretty much how much you want 2021 to be the year. And that's where, you know, when the Reds opened their window prior to 2020, did they really think they've got a three-year window by signing Moose and Cassianos? Or did they really think it was more of a two-year window? And if it's only a two-year window and 2021 is the end of that window, well, can you wait? That's the, you know, I, I don't know if they can at this point. And that's the big question in all this, because especially when you got Castellanos with the opt out clause again after 2021. Um, it's uh, these are the decisions that keep GMs up at night and keep me able to write about stuff because there's so many different ways they could go. Yeah, we've like also with Trevor Bauer. I know he said in the past that he wants to sign like one year deals until he stops playing baseball. Is that the kind of thing that you would be very much? I probably I guess. uh the price tag might be too high since it's probably like 30 plus million on one guy in this kind of off season. But yeah, yeah, that's, I, I actually wrote about that earlier this, uh, this week. Um, you know, the way that the modified qualifying offer system is set up, you know, the Reds issued him a qualifying offer for 18.9 million or whatever he declined. Um, the Reds will get draft pick compensation if he signs elsewhere, but if he just signs a one year deal, even if it's a record breaking average annual value deal, if he signs for one year and 40 million, to go pitch for the Angels, the Reds get a pick basically in the third round. Even though it's a $40 million average annual value, if he doesn't get $50 million guaranteed, the Reds don't get that pick that will effectively be number 31 overall. Um, when they traded 
Taylor Trammell last year to get him, guy who was a consensus top prospect in the system, who guy who they picked 35th overall in 2016. I think the assumption was, yeah, that's a big price to pay, but if Bowers is as good as we hope he is and we lose him, we're going to get that pick effectively at the same spot where we drafted Trammell at number 31, 32. Um, if he sticks to that one-year model, it's going to kind of screw the Reds. It really is because they're not going to get nearly the value uh, you know, 40 picks later in the draft than they would if he signs for a big $200 million deal, which I, I you know, a free agent of his caliber should, in theory, unless he goes for the one-year option, which um, I'm sure the Reds are very interested to see whether or not he does that too. And uh, it's, it's intriguing because it's almost one of those scenarios where the more the Reds realize they can't sign him, the more they should still be incentivized to give him offers and bid him up because they've got to get whoever does sign him to beat him with enough money to where they get the benefit of losing him. Otherwise they're just stuck without Bauer and without the good draft pick. So I'm, um, I'm terribly interested to see whether or not he gets that kind of top end money. I think he will, you know, much like the Dodgers sign Mookie Betts to the extension, the best players are going to get the good money this winter. I think regardless, it's everybody else who's going to fall significantly down the totem pole in terms of their earnings. Um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether Bauer chooses to cash in now or do that one year thing, which um, puts a lot of the risk on his arm uh, while trying to maximize that average annual value. Yeah. And like, this was, I would say absolutely the best year of Trevor Bauer's career since he, you know, won the Cy Young. And um, so I know that we were talking about this, like on the podcast, maybe a couple months ago, I saw that you wrote about it on the on the website, but about uh, just hinting at Trevor Bauer's uh, pine tar use in 2020. Those uh, those spin rate spikes were pretty special, weren't yeah. they? Um, <laughs> 400 RPM, pretty, out of consi- pretty consistently adding a RPM in a specific, a specific number. And and he also was very much on record saying that's exactly how you can do that is yes. uh, is by using pine tar or scuffing baseballs one way or another. Um, yeah, it's, you know, anybody who's signing Trevor Bauer to a long-term contract this winter is absolutely buying high on him. There's no denying that. I mean, he struggled mightily with the Reds last year. He struggled kind of with the uh, the Indians before the Reds acquired him last year. Uh, 2018 was obviously a brilliant season. Um, but he's had a lot of mediocre years before that, too, despite having great arm talent and great prospect and draft pedigree. Um, you know, what I love to see... 2020 Trevor Bauer around for the Reds for the next couple of years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> realistically, that's not something that you're going to get, even if you're willing to sign him. So there's a part of me that says, you know, maybe you hope he goes and you do get that draft pick. But at the same point in time, that was also the part of me that says the Reds who were middling in the standings uh, midway through this year should have traded him and cashed in on something at some point, in the trade deadline. Um, since in reality, they played 62 games, won 31, lost 31 and didn't score right in the playoffs. Yeah, as well as Bauer pitched. It was a shame. Yeah. But um, so what do you think uh, we do see from the Reds if you had to predict uh, what they're doing this offseason? Oh, that's uh, that's an interesting one. I, you know, if the the optimist in me says they'll sign a starting pitcher who's not Trevor Bauer, who's kind of one tier below that to kind of eat innings and backfill there, they will make a run at adding a significant shortstop. Um, I think Didi Gregorius is the guy they would like to have. They obviously know him very well since he came up in the red system. Um, And I think he would be that offensive uh, jolt that they would get. And in theory, they would probably be able to get him on maybe a three-year deal, which is kind of shorter even. 
maybe shorter. I mean, he took a pillow deal last year and obviously had great success. I don't know how much he wants to cash in right now, um, given the financial climate. I'm sure he would love to have the chance to play 81 home games at Great American Ballpark, boost those numbers a little bit more, and maybe cash in again next winter. Um, but not a guy who's going to break the bank in theory. He'll get paid like he should, which is a quality major league regular, but you're not paying him $25 million a year to be a superstar. Um, I think they'll take that route. Honestly, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Reds swing a big trade this this winter as well. You wouldn't um, be surprised? I, not at all. Um, with the outfield glut they've got right now, even if the DH does come back this year or does come back again in 2021 or 2022, rather, after the new CBA, uh, they've got a lot of pieces they could kind of shuffle through without keeping all the ones they've got right now. I can see them making a big trade. I really could. Um, you know, I, I it's the way that the Reds have always kind of made their big moves in the past. Last winter, notwithstanding, obviously they dipped in the free agent market, but that's not something I think they are going to consistently do going forward. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them make a deal, uh, whether it's for a frontline starter that's cheap and controlled for a while or whether they do it to add a shortstop. I, I could see it happening. I don't think Lindor's that guy. I, the one-year deal and the huge uh, uh, price tag he'll have for just uh, the 2021 season. Uh, as nice as it is to dream on him atop the Reds lineup, I don't think that's the route they'll go. But I can see them dive in for a Trevor story. I could see them do something like that um, where they've Arnado? got multiple years. Arnado would be an interesting fit. You know, I get to watch him every day out here, and the dude is just a complete maestro with the glove and obviously hits 42 home runs every year. Um, I don't know if they'd be willing to take on that kind of salary. I could see them making a move for a pre-arb guy or a guy that's got three, you know, two, three years of control to where he, he kind of fits this window a little bit better than um, than he otherwise would. I, 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 I'm fascinated by their opportunities. They've got a lot of different ways they could go which is a good thing because it suggests you've got a good enough roster where there's not one thing that you have to fix. I think they know they've either got to bring a frontline starter in, whether it's keeping Bauer or finding somebody else, or they've got to find a big bat for the offense. And the opening that is glaring right now is at shortstop. Um, and they committed a lot of money to guys last year that I don't think they can necessarily move on from right now. You can't trade Mike Moustakis. You can't trade Nick Castellanos. You could trade Eugenio Suarez if you wanted to and move moves back to third base. Uh, but Gino didn't have a great year this year either. He hit, what, 198, and obviously the power was still there, but not his best year, and he had a shoulder injury. So they don't really have anybody who had a good enough year to where you can cash in, sell high, and, and chop money off the payroll. You could trade Sonny Gray. You could do something like that. Uh, That's mortgaging your now, though. Yeah. yeah. It is, but at three years and $30 million at most on what his contract is right now, um, for a guy who's 31, 32 years old, maybe you cash in on him and get – a young pitching prospect or uh, another position player guy, and then kind of backfill from there. It's, I think they're going to be active. I don't think the Reds are going to sit this offseason out by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but again, it's Nick Kroll making the calls this time. It's not Dick Williams. So we get to find for the first time exactly how different he is uh, running the front office than Dick Williams, because Dick Williams is also kind of a, a, a hereditary from Walt Jockety when Walt Jockety was running the team. So it's pretty, pretty much a 10, 11 year window of the same methodology in the front office. Nick crawl has been there for a lot of it, but this is first year making all these calls. So between uh, uh, a new string puller and the whole pandemic revenue issues, um, they're going to have to be very creative, but I will give them the benefit of the doubt saying, I think they will get creative. They're not just going to roll Jose Garcia out there, promote Tyler Stevenson. Um, you know, sign, I don't know, uh, a third tier free agent starter to a you know, $2 million deal and call it a day. I think they know that they have to continue to try to get better. Um, 
but they're going to have their hands in a lot of different fires trying to figure out which one's the right one to call. What do you think of Crawl? So, like, you say he's been with the Reds a long time. Is he the kind of guy who's very uh, stat-oriented? Is there, like, anything specific about him? Is he, like, a baseball lifer kind of guy? He is a baseball lifer for sure. I'm pretty sure he's an LSU grad. He was actually a bat boy on the Moneyball A's in 2001. Um, So that gives you an indication of like how he's been throughout the course of his career. He actually got hired as an analyst, I believe. And I might be having his specific title um, uh, wrong in saying that, but he was definitely brought in in the analytics department for the Reds a long time ago. He's been with the Reds for about 10, 12 years, but didn't really take that next step into the front office promotion role until about four years ago. Um, he's been very open with us. We actually got a chance to do a Q&A with him about four years ago, which was super, super cool. Um, was very forthright. Had two uh, baseball analytic uh, guys with him from the Reds front office there, uh, Sam Grossman, and, and I'm drawing a blank on who the other person was at the time. Um, but yes, he's very much analytically oriented. And um, as we kind of look back on the timeline of things and when Dick Williams stepped down, some of the moves they made this past winter, I think Crawl had a big hand in doing. Again, it wasn't necessarily him signing off on the deals, though. So we get this offseason to kind of see how much the two uh, parallel each other. But, uh, you know, bringing in David Bell, who's a very analytics oriented and kind of proactive as opposed to reactive manager. I think that's reflective of Crawl's influence on the front office also. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think he's certainly a guy who has expanded the operations uh, in the front office to include a lot more metrics than uh, certainly Walt Jock of the era had. And uh, I think even beyond what Dick Williams had as well. Do you think he's the reason that the Reds have Bodie right now? That's a good question. Honestly, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, you know, I think he's the kind of guy that that certainly fits his mold of being, um, you know, thinking out of the box a little bit. Uh, I think that certainly kind of reeks of something he would do. Um, I hope so, at least, because now he's in charge. And if he wants to make more proactive moves like that going forward, I'd be a big, big fan of it, no doubt. Here's a question. Um, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but... Like watching teams that have been analytically inclined over like the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, obviously the A's too, but like the Yankees and the Astros, I think have been really interesting in the way that they've targeted pitchers, especially in like the draft and like free agency or waivers or something like that. Have you seen anything specific from the Reds of like guys who they're looking at since Bodie came to town? Yeah, uh, some of the pitchers that specifically stand out and the ones that have kind of done better so far. Talk about spin rate. It's not something that the Reds are exclusive in looking at, but it's something that they certainly were not looking at several years ago. Um, The Sonny Gray trade specifically kind of started that. Uh, A guy who has had absolute elite spin rate on his breaking ball and his fastball. And that's something... Even up until about two years ago, I didn't pay a bit of attention to. When I saw spin rate, I assumed breaking ball. Spin rate on fastball is something that is it's very significant. More The more I look at it, the more I realize that's what causes rise and run on even a four-seam fastball. Um, you know, with Sonny, it was his breaking pitch that was his go-to pitch in Oakland. He went to the Yankees and had a really bad year. And you look at his pitch mix in that regard. Uh, he changed his curveball. He started throwing a slower curveball, I think, uh, and almost abandoned his slider. Um, and instead of having them as two different pitches, kind of turned them into one pitch, which really just didn't work for him whatsoever. Scrapped that when he came back to the Reds and went back to the pitch mix he used in Oakland. And boom, he's the same Sunday grade we saw when he was, you know, finishing top five in the, the Cy Young Awards uh, in the AL. Um, Targeting stuff like that is something the Reds absolutely never did before. Um, you look up who had success this year. It was Sonny when he was healthy. It was Luis Castillo, who doesn't have as much spin on his uh, his breaking ball as some of the other guys. But when you've got a changeup like that, 
who the hell cares? That's just the most wipeout pitch in baseball. Um, but then you had Bauer, you had TJ Antone. Um, you look at some of the guys who have moved quickly up the minors, a guy like Ryan Hendricks, who we didn't see this year, but I fully expect to be a part of the bullpen next year. Um, crazy good spin rates on his pitches as well. Um, that's something I feel like they are absolutely targeting uh, for sure on the pitching side. Offensively, the Mike Moustakas deal was one that really stood out to me. Um, you know, they signed Nick Castellanos late after I think they missed on a couple other guys. Not that the Reds didn't think he could be a very good offensive player, but not the guy who I think was their first choice. And Moose, they went out and they got him. That was the guy they wanted from the start. Um, you look at him, he's that rare combination of high contact, low strikeout, but also very high fly ball rate which in Great American Ballpark is like the best possible thing you can have because you can stumble into 40 home runs hitting 250 if you only strike out 15, 16% of the time and you put the ball in play and when you do, it's a fly ball. And part of the reason why he had such little success in Kansas City was because that's what he was doing and they were all dying on the warning track. Not a problem you really have in a lot of the National League Central ballparks. So seeing some of those things and kind of like looking at the signing and then trying to figure out why they made those deals through looking at the stats, um, you can tell they're doing a lot more research nowadays than they ever were before. And that's uh, it's 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 cool to think about because that's the kind of thing that, you know, that doesn't mean they're just going to fluke into one good year. You actually know that they're looking for the right stuff going forward. And even if they don't win a lot this year or next year, if you've got those people in charge, you trust them to be making the right decisions that'll pan off down the road. Who are some of the think one Okay, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. Who are some of the interesting like draft picks in that regard? Who you I know it was a five round draft, and so not a lot was going on there, but is there anyone that we should keep an eye on in like the next three to five years? Yeah, Austin Hendrick, the first-round pick, is the guy who really stuck, stands out for me. Um, he was an old high school player because I think he's already turned 19, so he was a little bit older than his competition. But a guy who just – you watch batting practice and you look at his numbers and you you film him and break down what happens to a ball when he swings and hits it, and he is that prototype. It's launch angle. It's uh, barreling the ball. It's exit velocity. It's all that stuff. A guy who looks like, in theory, he should be um, – He's very Jay Brucey, honestly. And, you know, with Bruce, it was kind of that fine line of, um, you know, pop up and strike out, basically. Ex- exactly. There's going to be a lot of swing and miss with it with Hendrick as well. Uh, but as the modern game kind of stomachs that more and more, uh, Hendrick seems like that kind of guy that might actually be put in the perfect position. Um, you know, you look at Bruce's career and he's had a phenomenal career. He's had 300 home runs, hasn't been the superstar you hoped for, um, but a very productive big leaguer that, you know, if you if he had come up in this day and age, and not faced left-handed pitching as much and done a lot more um, you know, launch angle stuff from the start as opposed to just rolling over on ground balls to the second baseman. Uh, you wonder how good he could have been if he was 22 now instead of 32. Hendrick reminds me a lot of him, uh, which is very projectionable. And so that's the guy out of this particular draft that, you know, obviously he's the first round pick, uh, but a guy who you could see why they were so excited to get him when they did. Sam, what was your question? I actually, I honestly forgot it. No, oh no, I think I was just going to point out that I like the Reds um, kind of brain trust because it's, it feels like they're all on the same page. They are. And um, that's the interesting part about having David Bell there, too, because um, if I remember correctly, when he was interviewing for the managerial position with the Reds, he'd never been a manager before. He was actually coming out of the front office of the Giants and was one of the finalists for the GM office or GM job for the Giants when they eventually hired uh, uh, Zaidi from uh, from the Dodgers. Because he's got the acumen of both being in the dugout, being a former player, and also having spent a lot of time working in the front office. So you can kind of see not only the moves he makes, you know, obviously in 
the 2020 season, it was a little bit harder to figure those out because you had expanded rosters all the time and the DH. And so he was doing things that we've not had a chance to really see a long track record with, but even on just a 26 man roster. And if there is no DH, the moves he made, you could tell were heavily researched well before the moment he was making them. It was, you know, it was exactly which players should be uh, at bat against which pitchers whenever they make those moves, knows who's in the other team's bullpen and knows what scenarios are being brought in for all those kind of things that you could sell were very played out before and weren't your classic uh, gut move from a manager. Um, I think David Bell's very in tune and intertwined with a lot of the moves they make both on the active roster and in game. Um, and that's super cool because that tells you that they're definitely having conversations back and forth between the dugout and the front office uh, routinely, which in the modern game of baseball, the more data you've got, the better I think you're equipped to make those. And so it's cool to see them actually putting that to work and not just kind of flying by the seat of their pants, which admittedly the Reds have done a lot in the last couple of uh, last decade, decade and a half. Dusty Baker used to be the manager. I mean, Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, D- Dusty used to hit uh center field lead off shortstop second. Didn't matter who was playing those spots that day. Didn't matter if it was left or right in the mound. It was center field lead off shortstop second. Every day. He's a very old. School That's guy. what happened to the Astros this year. Miles straw who can hit a lick was yep. suddenly batting lead off some days. I didn't know why it was happening. But he replaced I Springer. Say, that happens. I say that loving Dusty Baker, the human, as well. Um, one of one of my real good friends in Cincinnati is actually a, a bartender restaurant tour there, um, and his place is very close to Great American Ballpark. And apparently, Dusty used to come in after games every now and then, especially when they had the off day the next day, uh, and sip scotch and bourbon, have a cigar, and just shoot the shit. And pardon my French. Um, and uh, got all sorts of great stories about Dusty. And Dusty, the human, is a fantastic person. Still pretty glad he's not pulling the strings for the team that I root for right now, though. <laughs> you want to tell us one of those dusty stories that you got? Oh, God. <laughs> the, the story about um, how he doesn't have toothpicks, they're Australian chewing sticks, um, <laughs> which is different <laughs> because they're, they're, they're standard issue four inch long chewing sticks. They're not sharp on either corner. Uh, so, yeah, despite the fact that his, one of his many nicknames is Toothpick, uh, they are, in fact, Australian chewing sticks. So, yeah, I, that, need, to, I need to invest in that because I'm, my, I love just like, you know, if I have pet, obviously not now, I don't do it anymore because of the pandemic. But I used to just like love just like writing and just, you know, chewing on the pen. <laughs> look him up you can, i have googled him to make sure it wasn't him just you know uh, uh, blowing smoke they actually exist they are a thing it's amazing <laughs> i love dusty he's he's an incredible guy like the quotes that came out of him just some nights were unbelievable dusty for commissioner i'm, I'm all for it yeah all right we have definitely kept you over the time that we said we'd uh that yeah so that we told you so thank you for staying on the 20 plus minutes that we had you here um, I am uh, I am uh, very, very bad about uh, sticking to shutting up when it comes to talking baseball. So thanks for having me and thanks for letting me go along with you guys. It's always fun to chat about them. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, we never want to shut up about baseball either. So we're very glad about that. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully, um, hopefully the Reds can continue to be relevant again going forward. Because, man, that was a long, long five, six year window where it was just pretty awful baseball yeah. consistently. I'm excited. Let's. I think we're going to have a good red season this year. Let's see. Knock uh, on wood. I think yeah. so too. All right. See ya. Um, and that was our interview with Wick Terrell. Stay tuned to our feed in the next couple of days because obviously the NBA draft is happening on Wednesday the 18th, which might be the day you're listening to it today. Um, I will have a quick mock draft just so we can get it all like out there. 
that should come out before the draft. And then the next day on Thursday, we're going to record a recap of everything that's happened with the draft. We're also going to recap all the trades that have happened in the NBA because it has gone insane. That should probably be up on Friday. The interview with Wick should be up either Wednesday or Thursday. And we'll see you guys then. Double pod week. Woohoo! Triple pod. A lot of pods. Big pod pod time. Big pod time.